Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 26, produced 26 March 2016. Two thousand sixteen is the year of innovation, architecture, and design in Scotland. For a small country with an even smaller population, it's been suggested that the Scots invented much of the modern world. I'm Glenn Moyer, and in the coming months, events and celebrations will be ongoing across Scotland to highlight the nation's many contributions in technology, science, the arts, and more. A key element in all of this is the Festival of Architecture showcasing Scotland's built environment, ranging from its classic 17th century castles to today's wave of concrete and glass modernism, and utilizing such innovative tools as the common garden shed, Lego bricks, and even music. We're celebrating Scots architecture here under the Tartan Sky. Scotland has been changing the world as we know it for centuries, one innovation at a time. The television, telephone, even the tyres on your automobile are all possible thanks to Scottish ingenuity. And that's just the tease. In 2016, Scotland celebrates the Year of Innovation, Architecture and Design. It's a time to discover unique crafts, textiles and designs, including tartan and Harris tweed. A time to marvel at architecture both old and new, from the Scottish National Gallery in Edinburgh to Glasgow's Clyde Auditorium. A time to wonder at the engineering brilliance of feats like the Fourth Bridge or the towering sculptures of the Kelpies. There's more to Scotland than bagpipes, whisky and breathtaking natural beauty. Come and experience the year of innovation, architecture and design 2016. Come and experience Scotland. Scotland is universally celebrated for its breathtaking natural beauty. Shimmering lochs, expansive glens, and Munros that reach up to and beyond Scotland's often low-hanging sky are well known to all. It is this natural beauty that contributes so much to the quality of life in Scotland. Equally important to one's quality of life, however, is the often less considered built environment, a land of architecture. In 2016, Scotland celebrates its built environment with a festival of architecture, orchestrated by the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Scotland to mark the centenary of the RIAS. Founded in 1916 at the behest of architect Sir Robert Rowan Anderson, the RIAS seeks to foster fellowship and an open exchange of ideas among its some 5,000 members across Scotland. The Festival of Architecture offers a wide-ranging program of events thanks to partnerships with many other organizations. Programs like the Celebration of Scott Style, Building the Century, honoring Scotland's top 100 buildings of the RIAS centenary as voted by the Scottish people. Adventures in Space, Exploring the Architecture of Science Fiction, The Ideal Hut Show, Using the Humble Garden Shed as a Tool for Innovative Architecture, and there's children's educational programs including Lego bricks and even musical compositions inspired by architecture, and there's much, much more. Architecture is estimated to account for 12 to 18 percent of Scotland's GDP of more than $240 billion, and yet architecture may be something we don't often think of as we go about our daily lives, but it is all around us. Indeed, architects create the spaces we live in. And to paraphrase an old nursery rhyme, when it's good, it's very, very good. And when it's bad, well... CEO of the RIAS is Neil Baxter, a research historian with a specialty in architecture. You might say he bleeds brick and mortar. Both his brother and brother-in-law are architects. His late father was an architectural model maker. Even his sister works in the industry in the realm of professional development and education. Baxter has worked steadily on this festival of architecture since taking the reins of the RIAS in 2008. So my first question to Neil was a simple one. What does the inclusion of architecture 
in this year of innovation, architecture, and design mean for his industry? Overall, the the year of the, the innovation and design aspects are not within our area of focus. We're entirely focused on the Festival of Architecture. But the fact is, Scotland has an extraordinary record in terms of engineering innovation, scientific innovation, inventiveness. You know, we, we lay claim to just about everything. I mean, I think it was one of your compatriots who who wrote the book about the Scots creating the modern world right. and all that's in it. Yes. Um, I couldn't couldn't disagree. Um, but then I'm fairly partisan. And as, as one of my uh, rather more cynical friends said, yes, and you could write a book called How the French Created the Modern World and All That's in There, or The Swedes, or anyone you like, really. And, uh, you know, he, he does have a point, you know, if you take a nation's achievements... But I think the 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 argument pro Scots would be there aren't very many of us, and we seem to have been doing quite a lot. Indeed, indeed, and you Over guys got quite a long period. And the Scots got the important bits, uh, like you know the flush toilet and the camera, or uh, certainly color photography and television, the television and telephone. And so you know you guys got the good bits. Of course, the, 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 the joke is told in Glasgow that it was uh, an Edinburgh man who invented the toilet seat, but a Glaswegian who had the ingenious idea of putting a hole in it. <laughs> we won't get into the, uh, um, the Glasgow <laughs> politics. Yeah, the Glasgow versus Edinburgh uh, <laughs> politics uh, right now. But yes, <laughs> I'm not surprised by that at all. But, you know, the truth is, isn't it true, I should say then, that there is an element of both innovation and design in good architecture? Oh, no question at all. Architecture constantly innovates. And the history of, in particular, 20th century architecture is about experimentation and change because obviously what happens in the transition between the 19th century and the 20th century, and this is a good thing, is that you can no longer rely on effectively forced labor. You can't rely on, uh, you know, men hewing stones. Um, and it strikes me that this is this is a very positive thing. And and effectively the whole process of the twentieth century is discovering new ways of making buildings and making buildings that, that look good and work well, um, but without being as labor intensive as historic architecture undoubtedly was. Um and of course we have an enormous legacy of wonderful historic architecture. But we still have a need to grow and develop and change and create, you know, new contemporary comfortable housing. You know, the, the infrastructure of our cities has to, you know, keep pace with, you know, all the competing cities across the globe. And therefore, there are loads of opportunities. Our architectural profession is, I would argue, reasonably proportionate to the task most of the time. Obviously, if you have an economic dip, then, you know, there are too few jobs and too many architects. But most of the time, I think Scotland has it in just about the right proportion, unlike quite a lot of places in Europe. So, yeah, no question that, you know, innovation is absolutely, and scientific innovation in terms of materials, technology, and uh, the way that, you know, materials are brought together in buildings, um, crucially important. And, you know, architecture is all about design. And, and it's all about the marriage between the building envelope and what sits within it. And some of the greatest architecture is produced by architects who are responsible for what the Germans would call the Gesamtkunstwerk, which is everything. So furniture, fittings, light fittings, door handles, you know, nothing is, is taken from the pattern book or from the catalogue. Everything is, 
you know, particularly designed for the setting. And when you start to celebrate architecture in Scotland, that must be a huge task because if you think about it, and I'm sure you have, architecture in Scotland ranges literally from Certainly there are the ancient castle ruins. There are uh, structures like the Taidus, the black houses. Before there... that, you go back to the Broch, which exactly. is the, the indigenous Scottish built form. We don't have anything else that we haven't borrowed from elsewhere, but the Brochs <laughs> are the one thing that we can lay claim to that nobody else has got. So but you, so you go from the gamut of, of the Broch to, uh, to buildings now like the... Um, the Transport Museum, the uh, the Armadillo, the SSE Hydro, the, these new and beautiful, um, yep. incredibly unique, powerful buildings, structures, powerful, imposing yeah. structures. How do you bring all of that together into a celebration and, and and organize that? And that's, of course, what you're doing with this Festival of Architecture. Well, I suppose in part we are celebrating a, a thesis of architecture. It's interesting that none of the structures that you mention are included on our Scott-style list Uh-oh. of the best 100 buildings in the last 100 years in Scotland. Wow. They were all nominated. They didn't make the cut. But essentially, that's one of the things we're doing. We are touring an exhibition, Scott-style. And initially, we were going to tour one architect-designed version of Scott style, which would travel throughout Scotland throughout the year. The demand was such that we thought, oh, well, we, we have to produce two versions. We're now on three versions, and they will be touring. And the idea was they tour up to the end of October. They're now touring to the end of the year. The demand is just huge. The interest is fantastic. We're now up to the best part of 40 venues. I mean, essentially, Scott's style is the historical show. Other key touring shows, the Ideal Hut show, which explores uh, taking a typical, very small garden shed and asking architects to do something transformative with it. And we have garden sheds that are turned into Scottish landscape viewing places, uh, exploded garden sheds, um, you know, deconstructed garden sheds of various types, garden sheds which become periscopes, garden sheds which are allegories of uh, various endeavours. One of them's a grand Scottish puppet show uh, with Charles Rennie Mackintosh and Nessie, uh, which strikes me as an odd coming together, but there we are. Um, and, the, you know, the whole thing, there, there's a combination, and there's, there's a fantastic tartan shed, there's an origami shed, there's a shed that is dressed in something that looks like it um, should have been designed by a, a, certainly a top Japanese designer. So, you know, effectively, this is this is public fun, but it also makes a serious point that architects are involved in transforming and creating quality in the built environment. Um, another of the exhibitions is called Out of Their Heads. That's at the National Portrait Gallery that runs from June actually until February next year, the beginning of February 2017. And the idea there, the thesis is that architecture emerges from the imagination of the architect. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, you know, the, out of their heads obviously is a play on the notion of, you know, people being out of their heads on substances, but uh, it's, it's, it's a wordplay that expresses the fact that out of the head of the architect emerges the building. And um, I, I suppose there there might be a suggestion that, that that's a process that's slightly akin to the leap of imagination that occurs in certain um, mind-altering substances. But um, <laughs> we've got 12 all deceased architects because I certainly wasn't going to get involved in the tussle that would occur if we selected even one who was still alive. Oh, sure. So uh, the most recently deceased is uh, Catherine Finlay, who just died a couple of years ago at the very early age of 60. 
And she was one half of Ishida Finlay Architects in Tokyo. So she is, and she was originally from Forfar. Um, so it, it's all Scots. That's that's the thesis. And another of the architects who's included is Sir Robert Rowland Anderson. And the exhibition takes place in the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, which he designed. So we're also celebrating our founder in various endeavours this year. But that's just a that's just a selection. We've also got the Cities Expo at Mound Precinct. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of sleep this year. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. And I would, if I missed on the on on the buildings that made the list, I'm hoping I might hit on the list of architects. I would assume that Charles Rennie McIntosh is in there. He's in there. Okay. He is inevitably in there, and so is Robert Adam, who is. I reckon probably, in terms of international influence, quite a lot bigger. Now, I know this is a contentious thing to say, than Macintosh. Macintosh might be the great sort of, you know, late 19th and early 20th century name, but Robert Adam is the man who influenced quite a lot that happened in your country, as well as a huge amount that happened across Europe and the Russias, and the whole evolution of neoclassicism uh, comes through Adam and and indeed his his father and brother. So there's a sort of dynastic architectural setup there. Um, and Robert Adams in the exhibition. Um, we, as I say, there are twelve. We've got one or two more contemporary architects. We've got Peter Walmersley who's a remarkable Englishman who arrived in the borders of Scotland and just loved it so much that he stayed there for a lifetime and did tremendous, innovative contemporary architecture. Miss Margaret Brodie, who was the site architect for the Glasgow Empire Exhibition of 1938, aforementioned. Mm -hmm. So one or two of my obsessions get to play themselves out in all of this. Well, Macintosh came to mind because um, when I was in Scotland uh, on my first trip in early 2014, uh, one of my first stops in Glasgow was uh, at the Kelvin Grove. And of course, Macintosh came to mind when you were talking about the architect not just building the building, but being responsible for everything that fits inside, because there yeah. are some wonderful works of Rennie Macintosh that are on display in the, uh, in the Kelvin Grove Museum that are works of his furniture design, for example, yep. not his building yep. design. Furniture, cutlery, light fittings, as I say, door handles, doors themselves, every part of the building is thought about and emerges from Macintosh's imagination. Quite extraordinary feat of creativity, but that those are things that I don't typically associate. If, if I were to think of an architect, those are not the types of things that I would associate with his or her skill. Um, well, are we wrong about that? Historically, well, historically, I think the architect was responsible for far more. And and remember, one of the reasons for that is that. Everything was bespoke. So in an earlier era, and okay, we are talking about uh, an earlier era and people who had the resources, and you needed quite a lot of resources to commission an architect to, to build your house or to build your office or headquarters. Um, but, you know, the architect was asked to do everything. And I mean, that, that does endure into the 20th century. And you get some, you know, Pretty significant examples, not not simply in the UK, but but you know the Scandinavians famously did this as well. Alvar Aalto was designing furniture fixtures and fittings as well. I want to go back to the the shed exhibit you were talking about because when yes. again when I think of architecture and I think when most people think of architecture, the word itself conjures up images of structures that are are big and bold, imposing or empowering, sometimes perhaps overpowering. And to yep. apply the term architecture to a structure as simple as a garden shed is to me, a little mind-boggling. I'm having trouble wrapping my imagination around that. Well, the, the rationale is exactly that. The rationale is to take something which is modest and very familiar and challenge the architects to do something transformative on a very low budget, to take that basic structure 
and to make of it something which is, in a sense, an artwork. It becomes a, a, a sort of sculptural exercise because essentially we're not we're not asking people to use these sheds. We're asking people to view these sheds. But the idea is that with the architect's imagination, you get reinterpretations of sheds, some of which are amusing, some of which are functional, some of which have, you know, the essence of shed is still there. Some of them have moved so far beyond the notion of the shed that you wouldn't have known there was ever a shed there in the first <laughs> instance. Um, you know, so that's that's how this particular thesis is evolving. And this is going to be um, an exhibit that's touring around the country, is that right? It tours to five different venues. It starts in Edinburgh for the month of May, Glasgow for June, Dundee for July, Inverness in August, and then Perth in September. Okay. And, it's, and it's in each of these locations for roughly a month. In most places, it's going to the local botanic gardens. The rationale for that is simply that botanic gardens are, you know, visitor attractions of themselves. So they, they deliver, uh, you know, a guaranteed audience, but also they are well secured at night. So we don't have to spend a fortune on, you know, sort of guards and Alsatian dogs and razor wire to, you know, keep keep out the unwelcome hordes of, of an evening. Effectively, the big gates get locked and we have to hope that the exhibition will remain safe and sound until the morning. So there won't be any contest of how many people can we squeeze into a shed for a Kaylee then? Absolutely not. Okay. No, no. Mind you, one of the sheds, interestingly enough, is a Highland dancer dancing um, through a mechanism. Uh, it's it's a, a human scale, a large scale Highland dancer driven by a windmill on oh top of goodness. the shed. Wow. So this, this Highland dancer figure will just dance and dance and dance as long as there's a breeze. Now, th- there's a bit of innovation for you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's by one of our English architect friends. Well, uh, should I say, of course? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, okay. not at all. I think it's a lovely idea, actually. I quite like that one. It sounds wonderful. I, I would love to see it. Um, <laughs> and... and all of this is about the Festival of Architecture, if I've yes. done my research correctly, is all about bringing architecture and appreciation of architecture to the public. And you're doing this not just through garden sheds, but you're reaching out and looking at the architecture of science fiction and yeah, looking at music have, and looking at Lego yes. bricks. I mean, you're doing some strange things over there, my friend. We, we have over 220 events in the program. We've done that. I mean, we're a very small organization. We've done that by effectively inviting other organizations' partners to participate. And the enthusiasm and level of engagement, it's almost like architecture is being rediscovered as the art form that I've always contended it is. And people are embracing that, and, and it's something different for them. It's not a sculpture show or an art show per se. It's it's about something that embraces all of these art forms. I mean, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright described it as the mother, mother art and how accurately he did. Well, and architecture is something that is in and around our lives on a daily basis. And yet most of us go about our daily lives, um, people particularly who live in a city, let's say like Glasgow or Edinburgh or any city, um, you know, you're, you're walking to and from during the day, your office, uh, out to a cafe but, for a cup or whatever. The, the, the point I would make is, you know when it's good and when life is enjoyable and you also know when it's shit and your <laughs> urban environment is poor. And you respond to that and you respond to that. It, and it's not simply about mood. It's about uh, sort of, you know, a visceral human reaction to the quality of environment. I mean, I, I think there should be an extension to men sana and corpore sano. And my Latin isn't good enough to say what the, the next bit should be. But, it, you know, in a good environment, in a sound environment, in an environment that's 
conducive to creativity, human exchange, pleasure, delight. You know, these are all things that architecture alone can contribute to our urban environments. And I mean architecture, not simply as the buildings, but as the spaces between the buildings, as the surface of the ground, as well as the surface of the walls that, that surround us. And I, I think there is a real opportunity if we highlight the importance of architecture to people's lives and the opportunity of having a life that's improved through an improved built environment, we increase the public's demand for that improved quality. We actually, by increasing awareness and enhancing education and involving lots of children's and educational initiatives, we actually you know, embed architecture as something that people take a pride in, but, but also are sufficiently aware of to be empowered, to feel empowered, and to insist that we don't do short-termist, cheap solutions. We actually consider the long-term cost-benefit, or as my guru would have put it, the transcendental cost-benefit that arises from architecture. Well, and that's where I was going with that, though, is on a day-to-day basis, how aware are we of the architecture around us? I mean, I, I, you can walk past a, a magnificent building on a daily basis if that's where your job is, for example, or where you take lunch on a regular basis. But do we, as a society, are we as aware of architecture and all of those impacts that you've just mentioned that it has on our lives? If you're living in and around good architecture, I I don't think it's necessarily desperately important that you stand back and observe it and consider it as an intellectual construct, Uh, you know, both an, an intellectual and a physical construct. I think what's more important is that people appreciate that you know the world around them uh, and the urban world is created by other people and it has to be created in the interests of the the greatest good and if you can get that point across and if you can get the point across that it's not simply about commercial drivers or it's certainly not about short-term commercial drivers and we have to take a, a broader view you know, in in the UK, we glory in our inheritance, you know, particularly of the, the Victorian era in, in the city of Edinburgh, the Georgian era. Um, and, you know, we, we benefit day and daily from the quality that those generations built into everything they did, whether it was something as prosaic as a sewage system or something as glorious as a museum or an office building where they invite an artist to embellish the facade. But essentially there was a real, you know, determination that architecture actually communicates the the, the pride of the society and, and the you know the you know the the sort of corporate um, qualities that that come through good quality architecture. Um, and, you know, I don't see anything that's contradictory. I, you know, I, I, I think development of a high order um, is, is something to be encouraged. Um, I mean, we, we do tend to have a slightly negative attitude towards developers now. Um, but developers, you know, who are doing good things should be encouraged to do more good things. One of the areas that I sense your festival is reaching to, one of the audiences, is obviously our young people, and yes. particularly in two areas that intrigued me. One is inviting youth to compose musical pieces that are yes. inspired by architecture they see. And the other one I want to talk about is the Lego bricks, because that is yes. so ultra-contemporary. Uh, but let's talk about music first. What is the scope and the and the project behind that? Uh, the vision behind having uh, young people uh, compose musical pieces that are inspired by architecture. What it says is that your response to architecture is not purely about your visual sense, or even simply the you know the other obvious sense of touch, um, but it you know, it it can actually be an emotional response. And music of all art forms is the art form that channels emotion. 
Um, and I think the notion that, you know, your response to a building can be an emotional response and can be translated into music is a really sweet idea. Um, and, you know, these are short pieces of music. The children are working with expert composers and ultimately having these pieces of music played alongside views of the buildings that they describe, um, I think is a fantastic idea. And, you know, that's because one of our partners in all of this is the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And, you know, this was their proposal. And you just say, yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, to an idea like that. And, of course, we'll use it in the finale. So we will exploit it you know, as far as as far as we possibly can. You know, the benefits are huge. But in terms of children's engagement, you talk about build it at the National Museum, kids building models of buildings and being guided on how cities come together, uh, you know, as a collection of, you know, Lego components that then, you know, mean that they're considering, oh, how do you actually arrange the transport? How, what would you need in a town? You don't just need houses, you need medical facilities, retail, schools, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, effectively, you know, having children consider uh, planning from that point of view is is actually quite useful. We've got Children's Scotland, the Children's Parliament, Education Scotland. So these are all key partners in what we're doing. The national museums, the national galleries, they have very strong educational missions as well. Um, and, you know, the intention is that we get as much into schools and not simply sort of taking it along to, you know, show them. It's actually getting the direct participation of the children. And of course, we have a we have a festival of building cakes. Oh, yeah, we're making we're making a map of Scotland out of cake. <laughs> I'm down for that. <laughs> It's a bit of, you know, inspired, <laughs> further inspired madness. That's the Cake Fest is a growing event in the UK. And my the, the director of the festival, Karen Cunningham, contacted the man who has previously done Cake Fest and actually previously has used buildings as a model for cakes. And we decided we'd have a Scotland-wide cake fest and bring them all together and produce a sort of 100-metre map of Scotland and um, lard it with cakes. Oh, that's brilliant. So there we are. So yeah. there we are. So again, it's just any mechanism at all to break down barriers, to demystify, to say that architecture is yours. You must demand better in your built environment. You know, your built environment will condition how you feel about your life and what architects contribute is about that process of improvement and, you know, making that sort of subliminal argument. What are the traits that make a good architect? I mean, when you talk about, you know, kids growing up, talk little boys want to be firemen and astronauts and policemen and footballers and and goodness knows what little girls want to be. I've never been a little girl, so I don't know. <laughs> I think little I boys and little girls who, who want to be architects in roughly equal numbers, interestingly. Okay. Well, I'm just curious because it's not a, a career that you often hear young people aspire to. So what traits do you look for? Well, and what makes demand, a good architect? Yeah, the demands for architectural education way, way outstrip the number of places in architectural education. Really? Uh, certainly in the UK, that's the case. I can't speak for the whole wide world, but I know that in the UK, that is undoubtedly the case. And I think the reason for that is that people have a notion about what the architect does. The architect creates wonderful things on a very large scale. Now, that's the sort of most naive notion of what the architect does. As time goes on, people begin to appreciate that what architecture contributes to society is a fundamental improvement of the quality of people's lives. And I think a lot of people are genuinely motivated not by the prospect of fame 
or money because if if you want money then architecture is not the right road to pursue uh, banking's a much more reliable route to wealth um but if you want to exercise your creativity to the benefit of your fellow human beings then architecture is a very sound way to go so the sort of notion of the the architect in the in the fountainhead in the movie where the architect is messianic um is actually untrue as far as um the UK is concerned i mean apart from anything else we don't tend to build very many skyscrapers london is different london there's a proliferation of skyscrapers and applications for skyscrapers but actually I think that that strand of architecture is relatively limited in number. And I think by far the vast majority of architects are about creating, helping to create a better environment. And now helping to create a better, more sustainable environment. So there is a there is a considerable social conscience urge allied to creativity and I think most people of good character would want to both utilize their creativity and contribute positively to society so architecture allows them to do both. So young people who find themselves perhaps doodling a lot of drawing and design concept are perhaps uh, should look at the opportunities in architecture? I think there is no question. I think some people are suited, their their creativity is suited to the applied arts, to painting, sculpture. Some people are, are well suited to fashion and, you know, others are more appropriate for, you know, interior design and considering the intimate spaces that people inhabit. And then some people are um, are architects, and they they create the whole of the built environment, both the buildings and the spaces between them. We think of architecture as our our built environment. It's not the natural environment, but our built environment. And clearly, through yeah. the ages, building materials have changed dramatically from what would have been rock and turf, I guess, at, at the very earliest times to the types of uh, material stone that's used in, in a lot of the ancient castles, obviously in uh, Scotland, up to wood. And of course, I guess in the last two decades or so, the glass box has become um, so symbolic, especially here in the United States, of modern architecture. What impact has that change in building materials had? Well, it, interestingly, the glass boxes, concrete and glass, is much more a phenomenon of the period from 1910 up to about 1980-something than it is of the present. Um, I mean, okay, we still have within our big cities the the push for glass, aluminium, concrete, steel-framed modernism. But as far as most architecture is concerned, and certainly at the grassroots level, there has been a move back towards more traditional building technologies, uh, brick, uh, timber. Um, I mean, there's no question in Scotland at the moment, there's a huge proliferation in timber building and a far better understanding of timber technology. Timber is an extraordinary building material. It is uh, properly handled, sustainable. Um, It has incredible strength. Um, it is relatively easy to work and it has the potential to be very, very attractive. So we're getting more and more um, some Scandinavian style timber buildings, but also some indigenous Scottish styles of timber buildings are emerging. So there is there is a look to more sustainable um, technologies and uh, probably a move away from the notion of glass and concrete modernism, apart from in our urban centres where glass and concrete is still probably a thoroughly efficient way to go, albeit in, in Scotland with some stone cladding thrown in. Is that in part, um, in any way, 
uh, contributed to the overall green movement that's going on in society today, a move toward more sustainable materials and thus that change in architecture? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I think there is, and I, I've already said it, and I, I genuinely believe that architects in the mean have a social conscience. And I think that social conscience uh, is represented in buildings that are more sustainable, are more efficient, so therefore their energy costs are lower, so they're better for the planet, um, you know, and, and yet still provide a very high level of comfort for their users. So sustainability should underpin uh, everything that the architect does. And even ironically, I mean, we talk about glass and concrete and steel frames uh, as if these things were, were somehow the opposite of sustainable. There is a great deal being done now that creates sustainable, comfortable, um, highly energy efficient environments, uh, durable environments for city buildings utilizing um, glass, concrete, and steel. So, you know, we we shouldn't necessarily, you know, completely eschew these modern materials as as people tend to think mm -hmm. of them um, in favour for a sort of more lovable approach with glass roofs. Okay, so now I'm going to put you on the spot. Give me your examples of favourite architecture in Scotland. One modern. One, perhaps not so modern. Okay, I'll give you two modern. Okay. Uh, one is the Glasgow Homeopathic Hospital by MacMon Architects. And that dates from the 1990s. Um, incredibly intelligent, careful building. Um, not utilizing, um, you know, sort of grass, roof and timber, actually a fairly traditional brick and concrete construction. Um, but a beautiful built environment, very well considered, which creates uh, an atmosphere and a place that is conducive to healing. So whether or not you believe in homeopathy, um, the place itself contributes to the healing that happens mm. there. Okay. So that's one. And the other one is uh, the chapel of St. Albert the Great. And, you know, on the homeopathic hospital, I qualify by saying whether or not you believe in homeopathy, whether or not be you believe in God, uh, the chapel of St. Albert the Great is a place of contemplation and incredible beauty and great deliberation and care on the part of the architect to create a space which people enjoy being in in a very quiet, calm, thoughtful and considered way. Whether that is to worship, which is obviously its prime purpose, or simply to sit and think and resolve personal issues or wider issues. And do you have a particular favorite in terms of Scotland's more ancient architecture, something you think that stands out in design? I think the, the inevitable, that Scotland's favorite historic building is Charles Rennie Mackintosh's Glasgow School of Art. Yes. And it is among mine. I wouldn't say it's my very favourite historic building in Scotland. Uh, when we come to very favourites, I mean, it depends uh, how recent you're allowing me to go because I, I tend to be very much about the modern movement. So I I really like buildings of the, the, the sort of early modern movement, the, the 1920s and 30s. Now, if I'm allowed to go there, I can give you one or two examples. Sure. But if you want, if you want me to go earlier, um, I will happily go back to, you know, some of uh, Glasgow's great uh, Victorian buildings. And I mean, I would actually say the straightforward Scottish tenement. I live in one from the 1890s and as a place to inhabit, uh, which has tremendous inherent quality 
um, and is a communal habitation, so therefore that's more sustainable, uh, more economic, uh, better for society. Uh, the traditional Scottish tenement has a lot going for it. I'm going to take you way back then, when most people, I think at large, think of Scotland. One of the first things that comes to mind, of course, are the ancient castles. Is yes. there a particular castle that you think is a shining example of architecture of that time? Oh, um, I mentioned to you that the the standard notion of the Scottish castle is uh, Dunvegan, which is the one that is most regularly depicted, which is mainly 20th century. So, mm. you know, the notion of the, the Scottish castle. I mean, the Scottish castle that is habitually depicted, and I, I'm not citing a specific example, but the Scottish castle that's habitually depicted is the 17th century Scottish keep, which is either uh, a, an L plan or uh, an oblong plan, um, sometimes with pepper pot turrets, crow-stepped gables, gablets, uh, arrow slits, um, a, a rounded stair tower, a large banqueting hall on the usually on the first floor. You know, that's that's the sort of standard romantic model. And there are so many of them. And to be perfectly honest, they are not my favorite building type, which might sound sacrilegious for <laughs> okay. a Scot and a Scot involved in, in architecture. So if I were to give you my favorite example of a Scottish castle, I would say Place of Broughton, which is a 17th century Scottish castle built in 1935. Wow, that's interesting. interesting. By Basil Spence, later Sir Basil Spence. Okay. And then uh, my favourite example of more contemporary Scottish housing would be the Canongate housing, uh, which follows a sort of medieval example but modernises it really cleverly um, on Edinburgh by the same Sir Basil Spence. So he built, in the 1930s, he built an absolute classic Scottish keep to the extent that I was talking to somebody recently from the Scottish Castles Association and of course I, I said well Place of Broughton's one of my favourites he said oh I, I think it's a lovely lovely castle and I said yes and for 1935 it's not at all bad and he said sorry and I said 1935 and he said was that when it was restored and I said no that's when it was built wow so essentially, Scottish architects have been doing amazing things uh, for a very long time, and some of them historicists and some of them brand new, um, but you know, all of them making their, their contribution. You touched a, a bit on this um, in a couple of earlier questions when we talked about the change in uh, material technology and also in education. Yes. If you had to gaze into a crystal ball, what do you see the future holding for architecture in Scotland and in general? Really difficult question. I actually think that Scotland has, at the moment, the right balance between architects and commissions. We don't have so many architects that, you know, we have members of the profession you know, on the unemployment register. Equally, you know, the number of commissions seems to be reasonably in balance with the resources available to deliver them. So that's that's positive. There are issues about architectural education going forward in that we might not be producing enough indigenous architects. Uh, our schools of architecture are at the moment, predominantly teaching international students, and that's fine, but the international students tend not to stick around. They tend to go back to their country of origin, which means we have a potential deficit going into the future, which is a slightly depressing scenario. But what is apparent from architecture in the last 200 years when there has been such a thing really as the modern architectural profession is how incredibly resilient it has been. Architecture and architects always find a way and they are always in significant demand and they're always delivering good things that improve society. So my view for the future is 
on the whole, optimistic. But that's as much maybe a reflection of my own character as reality. <laughs> okay, uh, fair enough. Final question then. Let's get back to the Festival of Architecture, the year of innovation, architecture, and design in Scotland. Yes. We've talked about the many, many different events, and, and we haven't touched on all of them, but there will be many across Scotland in the coming months of this year. Yes. Um, what are you hoping that the public takes away from this uh, festival of architecture? If you had to paint the big picture, what are your, what are your goals and, and hopes that this festival accomplishes and its impact on architecture and the public's perception of it? The first goal is that it encourages people who haven't previously considered architecture to be something that was within their domain, actually engage with architecture and see that they have a role in determining the future, the architectural future of Scotland. So that, that sounds like a big goal, but essentially that's simply about um, you give people roots into thinking about architecture, enjoying architectural themed events, enjoying events that are you know themed around the notion of buildings and cities and quality of the built environment. And you know hopefully through that process, people realize that this is not something that's remote from them. It's actually something that is there and is crucially important to their daily lives. And if we can do that and have fun at the same time, then we've achieved our Festival of Architecture goals. My thanks to my guest, Mr. Neil Baxter, CEO of the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Scotland. For more information about the Festival of Architecture, see their website, www.foa2016.com, or use the link in the show notes on our website, www.underthetartansky.scot. There, you'll also find links for more information on the Year of Innovation, Architecture, and Design, about celebrated Scottish architect Charles Rennie McIntosh, and more. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalid, Agus Oliver Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications and is not affiliated with any Scottish tourist organisation or business. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>